Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We will get past verse 3 today. If you would, read along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. There we Father God, I pray, Lord, this morning as we dive deep, God, into your grace, that you open up our hearts and our minds to this heavy reality that your love was set on us before the foundations of the world. God, I pray as we dive into this, knowing that it's beyond our comprehension, and a lot of this is, is a mystery, Lord, that you help us see why this is such a glorious truth. Help us to feel your grace, Lord, be filled with your love so that we overflow, Lord, in love for each other. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. We've been in two weeks now in this amazing doxology by Paul, this one sentence that is 11 verses long, verses 3 through 14, this praise of God, praising the members of the Trinity for their different works within redemption. We have past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 6, what I just read is from eternity past, God the Father chose us and predestined us. In verses 7 through 12, in this present age, we see that the Son, God the Son, Jesus, redeemed us and forgave us. In verses 13 through 14, the promised future, we see the Holy Spirit as a, a seal to a guaranteed future inheritance. Each section ends with this, this uh, praise of God to the praise of His glory, which is the main point of this entire doxology, this entire sentence. In other words, as we saw last week, we are blessed and rich, infinitely rich. And that's all to the praise of God. Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. God the Father from eternity past chose us and predestined us to the praise of His glorious grace. And before I can even start, I know what some, if not all of you, are thinking. What about man's free will? And that's a great question, and we should ask it. If God chose us from eternity past and predestined us to adoption, how could God hold any of us responsible for our choices? It leads to kind of this either-or scenario. Is God 100% sovereign? over everything, in control of every little detail? Or are we free to choose, therefore responsible? You know what the answer to that is? Yes. Yes. Even though the Bible never uses the word free will, the Bible is clear on three things. Man has a will. 
and it's free to follow his heart. In other words, we're not robots. Our choices are our choices. I want to be clear on that. So man has a will. He's free to follow his heart, too. Our choices matter. They truly matter. The choices you make daily matter. When you put your faith in Christ, your faith came from your heart, and it mattered. And three, we are 100% responsible for every choice we make. I just want to make that clear. And another thing I want to make very crystal clear before we dive into this this depth of God's grace in our lives, that the gospel message is for everyone. It's for everyone. When John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, that really means whoever believes, in him should not perish and have eternal life. And we could show passage after passage that agrees with this, that the gospel message is for everyone, and whoever repents and believes will be saved. And whoever doesn't repent and believe will pay the penalty of their sins and is responsible for their unbelief. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I just want to make this clear. It's not a suggestion. He's not even offering. He's commanding you to repent and believe in him. Turn from your sins, that's what repent means. And turn from the sin sin of unbelief and turn to him for grace. Just want to make that clear because then you get to Ephesians 1, which was written to Christians. And God pulls back the curtains and shows us that there's more to our salvation than we may have first thought. Look what it says in Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Then look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And again, I could show you verse after verse after verse that agree with these passages. So what is it? Is man free to follow his own heart, therefore responsible for his choices? Or is God completely sovereign? Yes, The Bible teaches both. God is sovereign, meaning all-powerful, in control of everything, and man is responsible for his choices that he freely chooses out of his own heart. How do these two things go together? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Listen, it's a mystery, and that's why this sermon is so hard. We have to hold these two truths in tension with each other. They're truths that are beyond our comprehension. God doesn't reveal how these two truths go together. There needs to be humility when we approach this subject. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he says, I don't. There is no need for reconciliation between friends. 
This is what he says. This is a quote from him talking about this subject. This is a great preacher from the 1800s in Britain. That God predestined and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictions, but they are not. The fault is in our own weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictions to each other. If, then, I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained or predestined, according to Ephesians 1, that is true. If I find in another part of Scripture that man is responsible for all of his actions, that is true. And it's only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can never, uh, could ever contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that human minds which uh, pursues them to the furthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doeth spring. In other words... God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go together. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. You know, years ago, a Jehovah Witness came to my door, and he asked me, this was his first question, I don't know why he asked this, but he asked me, what is your highest authority? And I said, Scripture, and I asked it right back. I said, what is your highest authority? And he said, the Bible. And I said this, if, hypothetically speaking, let's just say if, The Bible claims that God is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if, again, hypothetically speaking, it claims that each person is fully God, and yet at the same time it claims that there is only one God, would you believe it? He said, no. And I asked why. He said, it makes absolutely no sense. So I said, the Bible isn't your highest authority. Your finite reason is. Reason alone will never explain how God is three and one. And at the same time, reason alone will never explain how God is completely sovereign, in control of everything, yet man is responsible and free to follow his own heart. Yet the Bible teaches both. And today, we're going over a passage that really emphasizes God's sovereignty. And I know that brings up a lot of questions, and because of that, I've been studying this for this sermon for months. I've read every single book I could find on this subject, both sides, any type of argument. And to be honest, I was overwhelmed trying to think of how to answer every single question that was brought up, and I'm starting to think, maybe I should do like an eight-week series, sermon series on election, and then I thought, you know what, I can't do that. But I came across a commentary that pointed out in Ephesians 1, this is what the commentary said, Paul seems unaware of any controversy. He just speaks clearly, plainly, and confidently. He just celebrates the fact that we were chosen before the foundations of the world, verse 4, and God predestined us for adoption. So I pretty much threw out all my notes and started over (laughs) I'm not going to answer every question this morning, and there's a lot of questions that this brings up, and I believe there's places in Scripture that answers a lot of those questions, but Paul just celebrates it here. So I have two goals this morning. I want to explain the text. So 
So we're going to spend time just explaining the text, verses 4 through 6. But then I do want to answer one question. Why does Paul celebrate this doctrine? I mean, it's not just Paul, John, the Gospel of John. Right? Matthew, Luke, Acts, for sure. But Paul, over and over again, he makes it very clear we are chosen. Why? So I want to answer that question. And honestly, in answering that question, I really want to just open up my heart why this is an important doctrine to me. So let's go and start by looking at this passage. I mean, there's three parts to this passage. It's pretty clear if you look at it. God the Father chose us. God the Father predestined us. To God be the glory alone. That's the three points we're going to go over real quickly this morning and and just dive into this text. Look at verse 4. God the Father chose us, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I just want to be clear, he chose us, the Greek word is eklego, which means to choose, to select, to prefer, or to elect. Therefore, he chose us is a very good translation. But here's what's interesting about this verb. He chose is in the middle voice, not in the active voice. Most verbs are in the active voice, and Paul, inspired by God, put this in the middle voice, and every time God chooses someone, it's typically almost 100% of the time in the middle voice. Well, what's so big about that? Well, the middle voice indicates personal interest. In other words, he doesn't choose arbitrarily. God chooses with great personal interest. And I said last week, he set his affections on us before the foundations of the world. And I really believe the grammar supports this. Who is the us? It's a question we should ask. What's this antecedent to us? Who is Paul talking to? Verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints. He's talking to the holy ones, and we talked about that, that's Christians. Those that are saved, not wholly within ourselves, but because Christ has justified us and paid the price that, that we deserve to pay. Therefore, God looks at us if we lived Christ's life, and therefore we are the holy ones. Those that are saved, Christians. This epistle is written to Christians. God chose us, the saints, Christians. And it's in the second personal pronoun, us, meaning Paul's including himself. I think it's important. As we will see. God chose us, in other words, those that are saved in him. God chose us, Christians, before the foundation of the world. Why does Paul add that? Before the foundation of the world. I've heard people say all the time, and I agree with this, it's a philosophical understanding of God, that God's outside of time. So why would he add time? Why would he say before the foundations of the world? Well, I think Romans 9 really helps us understand why. In Romans 9, Paul's talking about two brothers, Jacob and Esau, who are unborn twins. And God chooses Jacob for the blessing to go down over Esau before they were born. Well, why add time? Why say before they were born God chose Jacob? Well, Paul makes it clear, because it was before they could do anything good or bad. This is what it says. Listen to what it says. This is what Paul says in Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God chose Jacob. Not because of works. And to prove that it was not because of works, God chose him before he was born, before he could do anything, good or bad. In Ephesus, I really, or in Ephesians, I really believe Paul is just taking this one step further. God chose you, not just before you were born, but before the foundations of the world. Before you could do anything to earn God's favor. In other words, you didn't earn God's affection. It was freely given to you. That's what grace means. Grace is an undeserved gift, an unmerited gift, an unearned gift. And I, I believe there's nothing that shows that more than that you were chosen before you did anything. In other words, there's nothing you did to earn God's love and grace. Well, then why would he choose us? And the answer is simple. Out of love. Well, why did he love us? Because he loved us. Well, why did he love us? Because he loved us. Our being chosen rests on God's love and mercy and grace alone. There's nothing in us that was lovable. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy 7, 6 told Israel. This is what Moses wrote, inspired by God, to Israel. This is what God told Israel. If you would, turn with me. To Deuteronomy 7, 6. It's going to be on the screen if you want to just look up there. It says this, Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you, again, this is Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Again, you see personal interest there. Treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose Israel. God's chosen people. He set his affections on Israel out of all the nations. Why? Well, Moses, and again, inspired by God, makes it very clear why not in verse 7. It was not, let me be clear, it was not because you were more in number than all the people, all the people that the Lord has set his love on you. And chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. Right? In other words, Israel, there was nothing in you that made me set my affections on you. In fact, you're the fewest of all people. If anything, you're a stiff-necked people. Well, then why? Look at verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore into your fathers. And you have to think, well, why did God pick Abraham, a pagan just like the rest of the world? Came from a pagan family, was worshiping pagan gods, and God picked him. said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Because God loved him. Look back at Ephesians 1, 4. 
Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God didn't choose us because we were holy and blameless. He didn't choose us because we were holy. He chose us so that we would become holy. That just presupposes that we were unholy. (laughs) In fact, Paul says you were dead. You weren't just unholy. You were completely spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, right? Not just unholy, completely spiritually dead. And when that word says dead, it means corpse. There's two Greek words for dead. There's one that you're dying, and Paul uses that word a lot. There's another one that means corpse. Which one do you think he uses here? Corpse. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked. You're physically alive, spiritually dead, spiritually a corpse. Following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now and works of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. like the rest of mankind. We're going to get to this passage. If you think you're any better than people in Afghanistan, you were in the same boat, spiritually dead. Completely hope is dead. Children of wrath. Verse 4, but God. God acted. But God. God intervened. But God, being rich in mercy because of the the great love with which he loved us. Why did God act? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Well, why did he love us? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, we weren't seeking God. God found us. God acted. He made us alive. God saved us by grace. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do this? Ephesians 1, 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 2, 7 just elaborates on this. Look at verse 7 again. He he chose us, he saved us, he brought life to us. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that he would be praised forever and ever and ever for the grace he's poured out on us. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. The whole work of salvation is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. His workmanship means like masterpiece, like a painting or a sculpture someone has made, a masterpiece. A masterpiece which God started before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. And he chose us and predestined us to adoption. Verse 10, look at this. For we are his mass, or we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God chose us. God predestined us. That's the second point. He predestined us. Look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 5. Your page is flipping. Let me read you guys better. Ephesians 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He predestined us. The Greek word means predestined or foreordained. It's a great translation. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. You know, it's an amazing thought. I think we, we just call God Father too easily. You know, in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father only 14 times. The whole Old Testament. Only 14 times, and always as a nation, never as individuals. Then Jesus comes on the scene and calls God Father more than 60 times. In fact, that's, that's pretty much all he calls him. No one spoke like this in the history of Israel, but Jesus did. He even uses the Aramaic word Abba, which literally just means daddy. It's this intimate word for for father. But here's what's more astonishing. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, before you were saved, Ephesians 2.2 says you were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.3 says, by nature, your natural birth, who you were, were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, verse 4 from eternity past, chose to pull us out of our natural family and adopt us into his. Then he predestined that that would happen. In other words, God made sure that would happen. Why? That's a question we should ask. Why? Why, God? Why would you do this? Why would you be so good to me? You know, the answer is because he loved you. Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4. In love. In other words, out of his love. Not because you were special. Not because you did anything to earn his favor. Not because God looked down and said, you know what? Nathan's a great guy. I love him. But purely out of his nature to love. In love he adopted us. Just a side note, isn't that a perfect illustration? I was talking to their mottos who've been working almost two years now to adopt a child. A child 
who has done nothing to earn their love. In fact, Tamara was reading about how whole countries are aborting Down syndrome babies. babies. Whole civilizations murdering Down syndrome babies in the womb. And as a Christian, her heart broke. And knowing she was adopted, overflowed with love. And she wanted to pour out that love on a child with Down syndrome. A child that she's never seen or met before this child could do anything good or bad to earn Ross's or Tamara's love. Ross, if you don't know, is the elder of our church, a godly family. In a similar way, in love, God predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons. And this was all according to the purpose of his will. Meaning, out of his love, out of his grace, out of his mercy. Therefore, all the praise, all the glory goes to God. And that leads us to the last point. To, the, to God be the glory alone. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And what's interesting is there's three sections of this doxology. We've been talking about this. And they all end the same way. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Do you notice how 14 and 12 are identical? To the praise of his glory. But verse 6 is more specific. Verse 6 says. To the praise of his glory. But specifically his grace. To the, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why single out grace in this first section? Well, grace, again, means unearned gift, unmerited gift. And there is nothing that shows how unearned our salvation is than the fact that he chose us and predestined us before we did anything. 100% God's grace that he's poured out on us. Absolutely no works. We are in God's hands. Listen, there's three parts of this passage. God the Father chose us. God the Father predestined us to the glory. Be to God alone. Now I want to answer one question. Why did Paul make such a big deal about this? Why did Paul make such a big deal about being chosen Again, we can, I could show you passage after passage, but that's not my goal this morning. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it should be on the screen. It said, but Saul, we know that this was Paul's name before he was a Christian, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Paul, who was a Jew and Pharisee, hated Christians. He was throwing them in prison, even having them killed. Women and men, moms and dads. Paul went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked from him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want to be clear. If there was anyone that wasn't seeking Christ, it was Paul. 
He was trying to imprison and kill Christians. And he was doing that because he couldn't get to Christ. He hated Christ so much, he was, he was attacking his body, his followers. And he comes from a group, the Pharisees were the ones that had Christ killed. Why is that important? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2, 1. And you, saints and Christians, were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the, this world, following the prince of power of the air, that Satan, the spirits that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Paul is saying we were all spiritually dead. Just as spiritually dead as he was. If it wasn't for God's grace in your life, you grew up in Afghanistan. You look at a homeless person on the side of the road that doesn't know Christ. You were all there before God acted. Look at verse 3. Acts 9, verse 3. Now he went on his way. He approached Damascus, remember, trying to kill and imprison uh, Christians. And suddenly a light from heaven shone on him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Funny, he knew who he was. (laughs) Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Listen, Paul wasn't seeking God at all. He was trying to kill Christians. He hated Christ. But God acted in his life. Knocked him off his horse, brought spiritual life to to his soul. Why? Why would God do this for Paul? Well, look at verse 10. Now there was a man... Or now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the, the street called Straight and to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love Ananias' answer. Look at verse 13. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about this, this man. Imagine just, okay, Bin Laden's still alive, and God says, you know, you're in a different country. He says, hey, Bin Laden's in the other room. You know, go pray for him. <laughs> God, I've heard of this man, right? This was a terrorist against Christians. Lord, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Go, for he is a chosen instrument. When do you think he was chosen? Before the foundations of the world. You better believe Paul asked why. Why? Why me? Out of all the Pharisees, why knock me off my horse? Out of all the Jews, 
Why me? Why, why choose me, God? You know, I believe this, is, this, is, this question, why me, was one of the driving forces be- behind Paul's ministry. It was the heart behind why Paul had such an extreme missionary effort. I mean, he, he went everywhere sharing the gospel. Why? He knew he was no better. He knew he was no better than any Jew if God didn't act. He'd be right there with them, completely spiritually dead. Therefore, he had a heart for the Jewish people. This is what it says in Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, I have this great sorrow anguish for the Jewish people. Why? I'm no better than any of them. If God didn't act in my life, I'd be right there with them. In fact, in Romans eleven thirteen, 13, it says this, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He's writing specifically to the Gentiles. And he says this, And as much then as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why, does, why did Paul work so hard? Why did he magnify his ministry? I magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus just save some of them. Paul worked hard at reaching the Gentiles, hoping some Jews would be saved. Paul's heart cried out to the Jews because I I believe if God didn't choose him, I believe he thought if God didn't choose him as a chosen instrument and knock him off his horse, he knows he would have been in the same place. A hard heart, a heart of stone, spiritually dead, a child of wrath, a hater of Christ, hopelessly lost. Listen, I get it. I'm not want to compare myself to Paul, but I personally love Ephesians 1 and 2. I love these two chapters. Especially Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. I was adopted. My birth family on my dad's side is from Australia, which I visited, a culture that is so lost. My birth family, again, on my dad's side, none of them are Christians. None of them. And there's no Christian influence around them at all. But I was adopted. Meaning, my adopted parents set their love on me before I was born. Before I could do anything to earn it. You know the crazy thing about this, too, as I've been thinking about this for a while now? They weren't seeking to adopt. How often does that happen? It just happens that they were in a small group with a lawyer that specialized in adoption. And it just happens that one night he was talking about a child that wasn't born yet that needed to be adopted. Just a coincidence. And side note, my birth mom is an American, a special lady. 
later found out from her that people were pressuring her to have an abortion. And no one asked me. She didn't. You know, I've asked, why, why me? 1983, about 1.3 million babies were aborted in the USA. One of the highest years ever. She didn't. She gave birth to me. Had my parents fly up to Washington for my birth. Not knowing that, my, my birth mom actually was changing her mind. She was trying to get a hold of them before they got on the plane to stop them. When my parents got there, they met with her. She told my parents that she wasn't sure about the adoption, but then just happened to ask the question, what were you going to name them? Well, in the hotel, after they landed, my parents came up with the name Nathan, Hein or Nathan Allen Heiner. Nathan Allen being grandpa on one side and another grandpa on the other side, even other. Well, guess what? The exact name she picked out. She decided it was meant to be. Listen, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in a sovereign God. I believe in love God predestined me for adoption to himself as a son. I believe God's hand was on my life even before I was saved. Before I was born. It brought me to a Christian family where I'd hear the gospel over and over and over again. Why me? I can tell you there's nothing in me. <laughs> like, I know me. <laughs> I know my life. There is nothing in me. Why would God set his affections on me from eternity past? You know, the only thing I could think of was 1 Corinthians 1, which says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Listen, there is nothing special in me. I am by far the least intelligent pastor that's ever been here at Country Oaks. And for you guys that are new, you're like, well, he's just trying to be humble. For you guys that have been around since Pastor Andy, you're like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard me try to pronounce words up here. Try to read. Ask Sarah, I can't spell. Like, at all. You've got an email or text from me, you, you know that. In fact, in elementary school, I could barely read. Guess what? I sat with my mom and dad during sermons. Why? Because I was afraid to go to Sunday school because they made you read out loud. That means from, from ages 9 to 18, nine years, week after week, I listened to Pastor Andy preach from this pulpit. I truly believe God used my learning disabilities and my pride of not wanting to be embarrassed to guide me to truth that was preached week after week after week. Listen, I, I, again, I'm not special or holy. I didn't even like our church back then. I was begging our parents to go somewhere else because I thought I was wise. We stood up during every song. I wanted to go to a church that sat during some of the songs. And I'm glad my parents did not follow my wisdom. 
And I say that because I see parents chasing around their kids from church to church to church. To be honest, I don't even think I was saved. All I wanted to do was play basketball for my own glory. And I became pretty mediocre. The short white guy, good enough to make the smallest Christian college in all of California to play basketball at. So small, in fact, they only had one degree, biblical studies. So I became a biblical studies major just so I could play basketball. Listen, I look back in my life and I see God's hand directing me. I see him shaping me into a pastor before I was ever called, before I was ever saved. This is what it says in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift, an unearned gift of God, not a result of work so that, so that no one may boast. Listen, there's nothing in me. There's nothing I did. There's nothing I can boast about. Say, this is why God loved me. This is why he put his, his grace on me. It was all God. It was all his grace. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. That's how I feel. God chose me. He predestined me. He brought life to my soul. He saved me. He prepared me. And now all I have to do is walk. Why me? Why Paul? Why any of us? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord God. I, I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Here is what God has clearly revealed to us. The gospel message is meant for everyone. If anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Romans 10.9 and we as Christians are called to take that gospel message, that good news, to the ends of the earth, to the nations. But let God get all the glory. Let God get all the glory for his amazing grace that spans from eternity past to eternity future. Let that grace be our motivation to take the gospel to our families to take the gospel to our community here in Tashby, to take the gospel to the nations. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I read Ephesians 1 and 2 and I'm just amazed. It's almost embarrassing how blessed we are. You've poured out grace upon grace upon grace on us. Lord, just the fact that we've heard the gospel message in our life is grace. God, help that 
be our motivation, that you're a good God, that we've been in your hands from eternity past to eternity future. There's nothing we can fear because we are adopted sons and daughters of you, Lord. Help us lay down the fears of sharing the gospel, the fears of of going out, Lord, uh, the fears of leaving things behind to follow you, Lord. Because we know you're good. Help your grace be the motivation why we take the gospel message out, Lord. I pray that all of us are just overwhelmed by your goodness, your grace, and your love, Lord. That there's nothing else we can do but act. I pray for our church, Lord. I pray that we grasp this deep truth, Lord, and it motivates us to godliness. In your son's name, amen.